0: You're listening to the Doxology and Theology podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. I've been tasked with talking about gospel-centered worship. I don't know if any of you are familiar, and it's okay if you're not, uh, with a study um, I just put out with gospel coalition slash good book company called Gospel Shaped Worship. Um, one thing I appreciated about that, when I was brought in to, um, to write that study, uh, initially it was specifically about the worship service, like seven sessions on uh, applying the message of the gospel and, and the methods that would be the implications of the gospel to corporate worship. And so I came in really excited about that, and they sort of changed it on me after I was already in and, and, and agreed to write it um, because their concern, I think rightly so, was that so many of us and so many evangelicals, I I guess I should say, I don't want to presume for you, but so many evangelicals equate worship with specifically the worship service, or uh, even more specifically, they equate worship with music. And so it's not uncommon sometimes in a worship gathering um, to even see like in the order of worship, uh, worship time and then sermon as if the worship time has stopped and now the preaching begins, You know that sort of thing. Uh, or, to you know refer to what a great time of worship, referring specifically to the music, I know some of that 's just the nomenclature, just the you know the language that we use and if you were to take a test on it, you obviously would agree that worship is more than that. but as much as we can do to help our brothers and sisters remember that all of life is worship right we 're never not worshiping it 's one of the um, uh, great lessons we get from John Calvin out of the Reformation tradition um, that our hearts are idol factories or just that that worship switch is always flipped on and so what we did with that um, session and I don't mind um, with that study recommending it to you because if you buy it I don't make a dime on it right so there's no royalties involved so if you were to purchase it um, you would see that it actually helps people work through worship in the um, instance of mission in the sense of uh, just the way the church interacts with each other as uh, brothers and sisters, creates a family of God, all that sort of thing. And that's what I want to do this afternoon, looking at Romans chapter 15. So if you came in thinking specifically about the worship service, um, maybe at first you'll be disappointed. I hope that you won't be disappointed when you leave, um, because I want to talk about the all-encompassing nature of worship and how the gospel shapes that, drives that. We'll have a a few kind of applicational tidbits about the um, corporate gathering, but this session itself is not specifically about the corporate gathering. Um, One thing I love about the Apostle Paul and and the way that he writes about the gospel, I think Scotty helped us see that a little bit last night, uh, was uh, how it cannot be um, an academic thing for him or simply an academic thing for him. As learned as Paul was, uh, you know, smartest guy in the room, uh, in any room he's in, theologically trained, you know, had all the degrees, all the um, you know theological merit badges, uh, to come. Um to the teaching of the gospel, the exposition of the gospel, the way he did, had to come from an experience of the gospel, right? And so his conversion experience, I think, that that moment on the road to Damascus, colors, shapes everything that he does, and and, um, all the ways that he writes about gospel and gospel mission. It cannot just be this sort of um, ideological, ethereal, kind of um, hypothetical idea for him, right? It is Um, uh, an eight, like in Colossians, he talks about the gospel has gone into the world as bearing fruit and growing. Like it's this alien force that's like dropped out of heaven and it's going into the world and it's, you know, has this, this power to it. The gospel is itself power. So that's how he talks about the gospel because that's what the gospel did to him, right? Um, Elsewhere he says, I was laid hold of, right? He uses the word apprehended. I was, you know, kind of hijacked by this thing. And so whenever he talks about the way that the gospel can be applied or ought to be applied, um, has that sense of, you know, kind of like stepped into the bear trap of grace, that it is this um, overpowering thing, this, this, this juggernaut thing. And so whenever he talks about a church that is centered on the gospel, he talks about this sort of intoxication of grace as well. And I think we see that in Romans chapter 15. Let's just look at uh, verses 1 through 7. And then we're going to look at some sort of implications for gospel-centered worship out of this portrait of what we might call a gospel-centered church. This is a portrait of a gospel-centered church, okay? We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. Uh, I want to pray. I want to thank our Heavenly Father for it and uh, ask Him to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this Word that Your Spirit has breathed out. Uh, We ask that You would help us not to take it lightly, um, but that we would see the glory of Your Son in a new and fresh way that strengthens us and renews our commitment to that old message um, that we have believed, that we might believe uh, stronger still. And we ask that you'd help us to see uh, the resonance of grace, the versatility of grace, that your gospel of the finished work of your son is not something we graduate from or move on from, but center ourselves around over and over and over again, um, because that is where the power for transformation and devotion lies. And so we thank you for that, and we ask that you would help us um, honor you, and it's in your son's great name that we pray, the name of Jesus, amen. Well, you'll notice right off the bat, and I'm just taking this in the order of the text, so I'm not trying to create a certain kind of order of importance with these points, uh, but just kind of letting Paul sort of set out the table for us and taking it piece by piece. I think the first thing that we see, and it shouldn't be a surprise to any of us, is that gospel centered worship manifests in love for our neighbors. Gospel centered worship manifests itself. Ultimately, in love for our neighbors, Jesus connects, of course, love for God with love for neighbor. In fact, he he makes them so uh, you know bound with each other that it doesn't make any sense. In the same way, to say that faith and works are different and yet they are never uh, uh, you know real faith cannot be um, ever without works; otherwise, it's not real faith, right? So they're distinct and yet not separate. Love for God and love for neighbor are distinct and yet should not be separate. If you say you love God but you don't have love for your brother or for your lost neighbor you really don't have love for God or you haven't fully understood the kind of love that God has for you so Jesus makes this connection he he binds these two commandments together that you love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength and that you love your neighbor as yourself because the love that is given to us in the gospel is a a starter point, a flashpoint, if you will. It's meant to be sort of um, reflected out, radiated back out to others who need that same gospel. And so. I think this has huge implications for evangelism and just even the impulse for evangelism. Maybe you struggle with sharing the gospel, maybe you struggle with, you know, finding out how do I have a gospel conversation, but just the impulse, if you lack the impulse to want to, the desire to share the gospel with someone that other people might know, the Christ that you know, then that is a clear indication that there's some uh, disconnect in your vertical relationship that you don't have as full an embrace of the gospel as you think you do. If it's just for you, just you and your personal relationship with Jesus, and doesn't have these implications for those that you meet and those you encounter, that's a sure sign that there's some error, some dysfunction in your personal understanding of the grace of God. The love that is given to us is meant to be shared. And this shows, I think, that our worship is actually driven by the gospel if we are compelled by love for God to love others. And this is how Paul puts it, just very practically. We who are strong, right? So if you have the grace of God, you're stronger than those who don't. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. It's just his way of saying love your neighbor as you love yourself. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. What's so wonderful about the gospel is it brings these things that you don't think ought to go together together. So, for instance, it um, brings with it to the Christian a profound sense of boldness and confidence because of the security we have in Christ. And yet at the same time, it brings with it a profound sense of humility and selflessness because of what it says about us apart from Christ. The spiritual bankruptcy that we have without Christ, um, you know, reveals to us the need to not make ourselves more than we are, to not puff ourselves up. And yet when the grace of God in Christ comes to us and brings us all the riches of Christ and brings with it the power of the Holy Spirit, now we are emboldened. So imagine what that would look like, right? The well-ordered Christian is one who is both humble and bold at the same time one who is willing to get low and to be selfless, to sacrifice, and yet at the same time empowered, empowered with great confidence to carry out the work of God. This is what Steve Timmis says, I think in a, in a way that's very um, convicting, about the obligation that Paul is talking about here. He reminds us that Jesus has said, if anyone would come after him, we, uh, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow him. And this is what Timmis says, if I'm not prepared to jeopardize a friendship, so that I can tell others about Christ, I can be fairly certain I won't give up my life. If I'm not prepared to miss out on a promotion so I can stay and help plant churches, I can be fairly certain I won't give up my life. If I'm not willing to pursue people who are different from me in order to bless them, I can be fairly certain I won't give up my life. If I refuse to give up a holiday abroad so I can support someone in gospel ministry, I can be fairly confident I won't give up my life. And if I'm not prepared to give up my bed to go and serve someone, I can be fairly confident I won't give up my life. But to give up one's life is the most profound love that you can have for someone. And this comes by the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ empowers us to do this because it so satisfies us in Jesus that we despair of every other alternative. In fact, we reckon ourselves dead already. willing to give up my life because I've already been crucified with Christ. I, it's not even me who really lives anymore. I live by faith in Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. This is something that only the grace of God can do. Only the grace of God can reveal our pride and at the same time forgive us for our pride and set us free to love others selflessly and sacrificially. But there's two ways when we sort of get off, off um, off message, off the center of the gospel, two ways that we tend to interact with our neighbors. And when I say we, I just mean sort of the evangelical church. And a lot of times these sort of um, off-kilter methodologies or, or, or um, ideologies find their ways into our corporate worship services or just the corporate witness of the local church, right? The, the two sort of rival ideologies that sometimes go together to the gospel um, that we engage in the most are consumerism, And combat. We position ourselves sometimes, oftentimes, as consumers. We use the community around us for our comfort and convenience, for our own prosperity alone. We treat the world as if it exists to be used, to be consumed, to be profited from. We have the evangelical church today that has embraced a consumerism, trying to use the means of the world to attract them to the things of God. Or alternatively, right, so there's consumerism, and then there's combat. We treat um, the world around us from the position of a combatant. And um, the way this plays out most often is in this sort of culture war kind of mindset. The consumeristic church flings the doors wide open, but doesn't show much distinction from the world at all. The combative church closes the doors tight and so embraces distinction that it's not in the world, but not of it, but tries to be um, out of the world entirely. And so those who sort of engage in this sort of fist-shaking, hand-wringing about the decline of the culture, every time, of course, the election cycle picks up, you see this culture war bubbling up to the surface. We begin to judge those who are outside the church much more harshly than we judge those inside the church, which is something Paul specifically says not to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We treat the other, the unbeliever, as some sort of monster, as some um, you know, person um, below us or beneath us, which reveals our own pride as if by becoming Christians it's because we're smarter than them or more righteous in ourselves than them as if if it weren't for Christ we wouldn't be in the exact same place that they are. Culture war. We've forgotten what the church exists to do. Not to hate its enemies but to love the world. You can't love somebody and use them at the same time. Now, what these two ideologies have in common, and oftentimes, again, they tend to find themselves in the, uh, in the same seat. You can, you can have both consumerism and the sort of combat at the same time. But really both are functionally worships of self. Consumerism and the sort of combative posture towards the culture are what happens when our worship is driven by law rather than by grace. When Jesus Christ saw the crowd. You know what he did. He, he felt compassion for them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that word compassion in the, um, in the Greek, it's not um, like the sort of like pity. Like you felt sorry for them. It's like this brokenness in the guts. He was so moved, viscerally moved by their lostness. He loved them. He cared for them. He knew that they needed him. This is the kind of love, this is the kind of vision that we're to have for the outside world. So when you see those on your social media feed or just while you're driving around or at the coffee shop or whatever it is, do don't think like you do, don't look like you do, don't go to the places that you go to, don't have the same uh, you know, r- religious terminology as you do, whatever it is, do you have compassion for them? Or do you think of them as the, as the other? Love means serving and serving means embracing our obligation. He calls it an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves to seek our neighbor's good in order to build him up in a way this is an echo of Jeremiah chapter 29 right everyone remembers verse 11 from Jeremiah chapter 29 put that on coffee mugs and all that sort of thing but Jeremiah chapter 29 um, it is like a picture of the community of God in exile like I mean I think we need a good sort of sense of what exile is today for the church in the West The church in exile, the Lord through the prophet is saying to the church, you seek your welfare in the city's welfare. You seek their good. You'll find your good in their good. And this is exactly what Paul is kind of talking about here. The Lord is instructing through his servants that the children of Israel, the children of God, under a foreign culture, Babylonian culture in Jeremiah, for us, I mean, we could call it Babylonian culture if you want, a worldly system, the new Roman Empire, if you will. We're being told to seek the welfare of our lost neighbors with the promise that we'll find our own welfare in the welfare of our neighbors. So imagine that. Imagine if your church loved its city the same way that it loved its own body. What would that look like? What would that look like practically? What would your church schedule look like, church calendar look like? What would the worship service look like? What would your church budget look like? And this happens when a church is drinking so deeply of God's love and the gospel. They're experiencing the spirits uncorking of all the barrels of gospel wine. And so there's just so much love there. It can't help but spill out into the streets. Secondly, a, gosp- um, a gospel centered worship is a resolution to look foolish to the world. Gospel centered worship is a resolution to look foolish to to the world, right? There is an appropriate contextualization. Um, you know, I think sort of the aesthetics of uh, your church or the, cont- you know, the context of your church, um, even sort of the ethnic makeup of your church. I was asked this question, it was a very helpful question. Uh, last weekend was up st- in upstate New York And one of the questions in the Q&A time was, um, you know, how multi-ethnic should a church be if it doesn't live in a multi-ethnic neighborhood? And I said, well, that'd be really difficult, actually. I think your church should look like your neighborhood. That's the goal, that you reflect your community. You're actually reaching those people in your community. So there's an appropriate way of appealing, right, of making an appeal to be winsome, to adorn the gospel, not just with that message of grace, but with a culture of grace. But we also know that the gospel is offensive to those who are perishing, and so it is foolishness. The message of the cross is folly to those who are dying. And sometimes, for some churches, contextualization looks like trying to minimize as much of that foolishness as possible. To try to um, sand off the rough edges, if you will. But if we're actually centered on the cross, if we're actually centered on the gospel, we will, in that commitment itself, be okay with looking foolish to those who find the gospel itself foolish. So aligned with the gospel that we're willing to look silly, stupid, backwards, uncool, in the best sense, unselfconscious. I love this is what N.T. Wright says about worship. He says, true worship never checks its watch. And I don't think he means necessarily that you're just sucked up into a worship experience It's so exciting and so fun and sweet or what have you. I think what he's saying is when you are so in awe of God and you're adoring God, you have a sense of self-abandonment. You're not worried about what's next, what's on your agenda, what's on your timetable. You've despaired of your own self and you're wrapped up into the glory of God. So I would go further to say that worship shaped by the foolishness of the cross has less and less self-consciousness in it. Self-preservation in it. Self-consideration in it. Look at verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. What is Jesus saying? Essentially saying, Father, I want to be so connected to you that all of the hatred the world has for you falls on me as well. And if anyone loves you, they're going to love me. But if they hate you, they're going to hate me. That's how aligned with you I want to be. And so you find all these warnings where Jesus is saying, don't be surprised when people hate you. They're going to hate you. And we've been told, or I I think we can assume, that the preaching of the gospel currently is not in season. Right? Paul says to Timothy, preach the word in season, out of season. He's somehow communicating that there may be times or will be times where it doesn't seem to be much fruit, where the gospel message does not seem to be um, you know, coming to bear in the way that you would hope that it would. It, it, it doesn't have a favorable reception in certain seasons of life or certain contexts or cultures. But that's not an excuse to say, well, maybe we need to switch messages. You, you keep persevering in the message of grace, even if it seems out of season. We uh, continue to be told by the culture despisers of all that is holy and traditionally faithful that we are, quote-unquote, on the wrong side of history. You heard that? You're on the wrong side of history. And a church that is not infatuated with Christ's finished work will we'll hear those messages and begin to kind of adjust, begin to, to kind of shift to appeal Sand off those rough edges. The church that is not centered on the gospel is allergic to embarrassment, afraid of looking stupid. It's like the worst thing that could happen to the church not centered on the gospel is to be thought uncool, unhip, unhappening. So the question before us as we look at the cross, which calls us to die is will we be so bold to follow the gospel wherever it might take us? A lot of Christians will stand up for truth so long as it's culturally acceptable, so long as the only fallout means some little squabble for that day on social media. But when claiming the truth of Christ and his gospel being sold out for the grace of God and Jesus Christ alone, many people sort of shrink back because they're afraid of the conflict, they're afraid of the questions, they're afraid of the division, or they go back to the scriptures and they try to twist it to conform to what they want it to say, or what the culture would like it to say. But we've been told in the very scriptures themselves that this temptation will always be there. It's in the very beginning. Did God really say, is that really what God said? This is at the heart of all of these sort of hermeneutical debates that have cultural implications today, just in the last few weeks. We've become convinced that the Bible's teaching on homosexuality um, doesn't mean what we always thought it did, right? You you go one of two options, either it it means what it's always meant, we just don't agree with it, or as so often, um, it doesn't mean what you think it means. We were wrong about it. Instead of adjusting ourselves to this foolish message, we try our best to keep the peace, and yet Jesus has come along and said, don't think I've come to bring peace. I I came to bring a sword. And has even promised that he would divide families because of devotion to himself. And I think that Jesus sometimes even divides churches. And given what is taking place in the world today, I don't think we have any indications that to follow Jesus is going to become more culturally acceptable or more comfortable. Even the Bible Belt is heading toward the cultural ruins of post-Christendom cultural Christianity is wasting away and the outside world is becoming apparently more and more hostile to the things of faith. And if God is doing anything in ordaining these cultural shifts to come to pass, I think it may be that we're finding out who the real Christians are. I think actually the church is getting stronger. We, we have this fear, especially in the West, we have this fear of smallness, of littleness. And when we see people leaving that, that's tragic any way you slice it, but it doesn't mean that the church is getting weaker, right? I mean, you just think of it like myself. When I get smaller, I'm getting healthier, actually. <laughs> uh, maybe not you, but me. When I get smaller, I'm getting healthier. Uh, uh, sometimes things get healthier when they shrink, actually. Maybe the Lord is sifting out His churches that His real church might rise up, and actually that's going to end up being more missionally effective. John the Baptist, I think, is a good example for us today. He said to Herod, it isn't right that you have your brother's wife. He spoke truth to power about sexual immorality, which is not a very popular subject today either. And eventually he's executed. Why? Because he was willing to go as far as the truth would take him. He would not back down. And he didn't do it in a rude way, just a bold way. He did it um, out of love, actually, because he cared about Herod. And it's really strange. You kind of read between the lines a little bit that Herod sort of like he admires John in kind of a strange way. He finds him interesting or something like that. And I think there's some parallels there for some sort of cultural appropriations of Christianity or Christian figures that kind of, you know, find some of our spokespeople a little bit interesting. But the minute the offense of the gospel comes to the forefront, ooh, we're done with them. I thought you were cool. And now you go and pull this stuff on us right so what we need are churches that are so aligned with God that they're willing to take the scorn that is heaped on him willing to be thought foolish. I'll just give you one brief application of this if you're a worship leader thinking this has nothing to do with music I'll, I'll get there I'll just give you a, like a personal illustration. Um, so I was leading a young adult ministry in a very large church the songs that they did I honestly they were awful okay just Bad songs. Songs that didn't mention God. I mean, just sort of like... And they were in-house songs, so it's nothing that you would recognize probably. Stuff that they wrote themselves. This was in Nashville, where everyone's a songwriter, right? So it's just like we prided ourselves on the creativity and all that sort of thing. And we're singing these songs. I remember once, like... I turned to my wife while we were singing the song and I was like, who are we worshiping right now? It was like about how great we were, how great we were and all this sort of thing. And I was leading, leading a young adult ministry and the music that we were doing in this young adult ministry, uh, look, this is before like all the cool stuff we have now or like the gospel center stuff we have now, right? So this was just like stuff on the radio. It's not like weird, whatever, you know, it's like Chris Tomlin. And like, that's the stuff I wanted us to play. And you would not believe like how divisive this was that I wanted to have songs that actually mention God in our worship service. And the chief concern was if somebody were to walk in and we were talking about God and singing to God, they would feel left out because they don't know God and that sort of thing. So this has real-world applications. And maybe your situation is not as extreme, but I actually hear... Um, you know, because of the kinds I write, you know, things I write about. I talk about this stuff a lot online. and So I get messages weekly from f- folks who sit on worship teams, associate pastors, youth pastors, who are in this state of crisis because at every meeting the gospel seems to be an afterthought. It doesn't seem to be driving any of the stuff in the agenda and the Overriding concern is a sincere one. We want lost people to know Jesus, right? I mean, the, the, the overriding concern of the secret church, attractional church, what have you, is a, is a great concern that people know Jesus Christ, that lost people come to saving faith. Who could argue with that? But to keep making the gospel more and more obscure, thinking that if we could somehow appeal to these folks apart from the grace of God, we will actually win them to the grace of God, it makes no logical sense and it makes no biblical sense. We're going to end up having to offend some people in order to win those whom God has ordained to salvation. Thirdly, the um, gospel-centered kind of worship. Gospel-centered worship is a commitment to the sufficiency of God's word. To the sufficiency of God's word. Now, that word sufficiency is really interesting because it doesn't simply mean like that'll do, like it's good enough, right? Sufficiency as it uh, applies to the doctrine of Scripture. Doctrine of Scripture means that it's all we need it is sufficient excellency and artistry are gifts from god they are meant to be used in the church because he's given them to christians but excellency and artistry are meant to adorn the gospel not to obscure it or replace it Um, the fellow who started the bible study that became the young adult ministry that i started leading that eventually became church plant is an off the charts gifted creative i don't know when creative became a noun but i'm convinced it was a guy like this who 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 made it such a thing. Create, I'm a creative, and he's such a great creative. I won't tell you his name, because he's out there. Um, he, he, he went on from our time together uh, to work at one of the top five largest churches in North America. If I said the name, you'd know what it was. Weekend lighting director at this church. Uh, he's not there any longer, but also traveling, doing lighting design for, for people like Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer. And so he had his like feet in this world, and so he was always giving me information. It was really interesting, like behind the scenes stuff. you know. Um, but he came out of one church uh, creative team meeting once and, and gave me a call. He wanted me to know what was happening in the, in the meeting and um, as far as he was concerned, this was a good thing. Like he wasn't trying to say, you'll love this for me to make fun of it. He was actually like thinking it was a great thing that, 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 that they were talking about. And essentially they had spent that creative team meeting studying Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga became sort of the, the, the object lesson for the creative team meeting. And what they loved about Lady Gaga was how she's constantly reinventing herself. Um, you know, she's just like, you, you see her, you know, she changes her look, she changes her style, she changes, she's always changing, and this makes it look like so fascinating, and so that creative team meeting became about how can we like apply this to the church, like how can we always be just like reinventing ourselves, and all this sort of thing to kind of appeal to the thing, and I said, man, I, I just, first of all, I don't think Lady Gaga is the right you know, uh, creative vision to be looking at in terms of how you ought to be doing corporate worship. But that, you know, setting that aside, I'm not a big Lady Gaga like fan, I guess. If you had said Bob Dylan, maybe I might have been like, oh, that's interesting, you know, or something. But, but is the church to be constantly reinventing herself? Always sort of like, ta- like how do we top last week? Hey, I, don't raise your hand, but I'm willing to bet that some of you have been in meetings where it's like, how do we top that? And maybe it's not every week, but it's the last Christmas concert or whatever it was. How do we top that? The bigger, the better, the reinvention. And I think when it started, it was, um, had a sincere motive or a more uh, connectable motive to the idea of helping people to see... Um, the creative gifts that God gives us, but further and further along, 30 years, 40 years after kind of the birth of the church growth movement and the seeker sensitive thing and whatever we might call that now and some of the worst examples, it becomes sort of an implicit um, admission that the Bible needs our help. That we really can't, like when we started giving away trucks on, on, on Easter Sunday, it's sort of like, you know what, this guy coming back from the dead, that's, you know, that's not good enough. <laughs> Let's have some giveaways. I'm like, you know, we have a guy who came back from the dead. Like it, I can't sell that to you. If that doesn't fire you up. Well, this is what Paul says in verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. There's this endurance, I think, that is applied to the encouragement of the Scriptures that's sticking with the Word of God. Christians are a people of the book. We know where the truth is. We know where hope is. But we have to handle this Word as if it is sufficient, because it is as if God's Word alone holds the hope of our souls and of the souls of our neighbors. George Herbert, great English poet, he says, "...the Bible is heaven laid flat." Like when you open the Word of God, the, the very words it's like opening a window, as it were, into the heavenly place. The very words of God are here. Why on earth would we minimize this? Why would we want them to just have a little bit of the Word of God when they come in on Sunday morning? Just a taste of the Word of God. God is speaking to us. And we sort of open the window and shut it real quick. What was written in former days was written for our instruction. The law was our tutor, as Paul says in his letter to the Galatians. But it's training us to yearn for Christ, whom the scriptures encourage us to hope in alone. So we have to preach the word as if it is sufficient, because it is, and as if it points to Christ alone, because it does. I was um, trained for ministry in the, we didn't call it tractional then, um, in the seeker church movement. The first book I read in my um, mentorship, um, you know, the first guy to take me under his wing, give me a book to read, was um, a, a purpose-driven church. Went to the Willow Creek Leadership Conference in 1996. So, you know, I ate, slept, and breathed, all that stuff. I don't stand as one who's just sort of outside. I'm gonna talk about this a little bit tomorrow morning in my session. Um, but anyway, so I was, I was there, and, and I was taught to preach and teach within that method, or within that movement. And essentially, it, it started out like this. It was sort of when you put a lesson together or a sermon together you want to identify a felt need anyone ever heard the phrase felt need identify a felt need what do your people need and it could be all kinds of things people have all kinds of felt needs they they feel you know um, you know that they don't succeed at work or their marriage is in trouble or they have financial difficulty or just anxiety whatever it is identify a felt need and then they want practical application how do they conquer that need so come up with four or five you know ways for them to address that felt need how can they overcome that? Deficit, right? And it's helpful if those four or five things, like spell a word or something like that, you know, you can do that if you want. Or, um, and I remember, you know, still some of those those acronyms and that kind of thing. Or if they just all start with the same letter or something like that. And then you would go um, and find Bible verses for every one of those practical points. And this was before the time, I mean, like computers were around, of course, I'm not that old, but like we didn't have like, you know, Bible software or, you know, the internet was still something that you had to go onto. Do you remember that when you had to go onto the internet, right? Uh, now we just kind of swim in the internet, but back then it was like submarine sounds would happen, and you know, and you have to like go on to the internet, and like all oh, that number didn't work, and you you type another number in to try to get in, and everything. Kind of um, so we didn't have that. We had those huge books called concordances. I don't know anyone ever used a concordance, right? So you would look for your word, like what was you know whatever your four or five steps where you're looking for these words in your concordance, you can find Bible verses that go with your points. And what would happen sometimes is you couldn't find a good verse that used the word that you wanted. And so what would you do? You wouldn't change your word, you'd actually change your Bible translation. And so it was very common to see in the PowerPoint or the thing that you know, preachers are using four or five different translations. Why? Because the verses from those translations match what they wanted to say in their point. Well, You all understand what the problem with this approach to preaching and teaching is. I'm trying to make the word of God fit what I wanna say rather than make what I say fit the word of God. It's completely upside down. And it's treating my words as more sufficient. And the Bible is sort of a support for me, which is why a lot of um, you know, churches that get off kilter say things like, we have Bible-based sermons, which is great, you know, uh, until you find out what that means. It's like the Bible's kind of behind the scenes. I spend a lot of time on my sermon, and I put some Bible in it. And putting Bible verses in your message is not the same thing as preaching the Bible. It's not. Fourthly, gospel-centered worship. Oh, man, we're going to use up all our time, but I'll hurry. Gospel-centered worship is is a Christ-centered harmony. So all you musicians now will love it, all right? Harmony. Something happens when grace takes over a church. There is this sort of sweetness that happens, a palpable kindness, a gentleness. People aren't just captivated with the message of the gospel, but with the meaning of the gospel. There are a lot of churches that call themselves gospel-centered, and what they mean is we talk about the gospel a lot. And then you get in there and you realize that the culture has not really embraced that message of grace. It's just a talking point. They love all the gospelly books, all the gospelly people, gospel's all over their website, gospel's all over their doctrinal statement, but it's not all over, all over their people, at least not yet. This is what Paul says, verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. They are experiencing this church, this portrait of, the, of this church, they're experiencing a unity of doctrine, yes, but also the harmony of what that doctrine produces. You can't have less than a unity of doctrine, but we ought to have certainly more than the unity of doctrine. As Ray Ortland says, Gospel truth, lovingly and consistently applied, cultivates a gospel culture. So people come into our churches, especially if we're trying to reach out, we're trying to invite people who don't know Christ to come to our church. If you preach the message of grace long enough and copiously enough, they will show up. They will show up. That will attract people, that message of grace. But once they come in, and they're coming in a lot of times with no church background or sometimes, oftentimes, with sort of a, a, a bad church background. You know, they were burnt in some way. And they walk in and they're looking at a lot of stuff, and, and and they might care in some way that your music is cool, and you got good coffee, and the preaching is good, and that the place is, you know is nice, and and has all the right signage, and all that kind of stuff. All that stuff's important. They're looking at all of that, but the number one thing that they're really looking for is this: Do these people actually believe what's being said here? This is something I reminded my church in Vermont quite a bit of: is that a message of grace will attract people, but a culture of grace will keep them. And if people have figured out that what's being said with the mouth is not really coming out of the bloodstream, it's not really sunken down through into the heart, they'll be gone. And yet when that that grace begins to pervade the atmosphere, when you center on grace, you make grace your thing, it can oxygenate the air. Watch these people breathe a little more deeply. Wouldn't it be amazing, just an amazing thing if we didn't have to suck our gut in at church? It's the one place in the world where we shouldn't have to put up a facade. And yet for a lot of people, their real life is Monday through Saturday, and Sunday morning's when they put up the you know, religious avatar or whatever it is. The culture of grace oxygenates the air. People stand a little more tall they feel a little more free to be themselves. People are confessing sin. It becomes a very um, unsafe place for sin, but a very safe place for sinners. And this really scares people. It's something that happens. that scares people who believe that God has delegated His sovereignty to them, those who have got the measuring sticks. But it really honors the gospel of Jesus in whom there is no condemnation. When a church is centered on the gospel its songs rehearse and celebrate the gospel and the preaching makes the gospel the center point not neglecting the law just having it in its right proportion that people come away understanding that the essential message of christianity is not get to work but it is finished you start to see more flourishing more life number five gospel-centered worship is a missional driver gospel-centered worship is a missional driver. In many respects, the um, letter to the Romans, I find this really fascinating. I had to um, study it more in depth for a study that I wrote for Crossway and came away with just, I mean, every time you look at, I mean, it's such a big book, you know, first of all, and I'm familiar with the, with the heights, right? Most of us know Romans 7 through 9 and all that sort of thing and Romans 1 and Romans 3, but like to actually dig in and see just the scope This just kind of like epic panorama that is here, it really, it it amounts to an apologetic for mission. All of the doctrinal themes that are here, um, you know, justification and the covenantal history and predestination and just all the stuff that is here is really building into Paul making a case for taking the gospel outside the camp to preach to the Gentiles. But for whatever reason, those who were disinclined to, to mission, to want to go outside to reach their neighbor, to sort of speak to cultures that weren't like their own, even, needed all of, needed Romans 1 through14 to get there. They needed to know about their identity in Christ. They needed to be swept up into the epic scope of redemption. I think this is Paul once again saying to us that the gospel is not a piddling thing. It's forceful. it is powerful. I think this is why in a lot of our churches, missional zeal is contained in a few souls that are kind of wakened to the finished work of Christ in a way that they operate almost like zealots within our congregation, right? Like, those are the radical people over there kind of thing. like, they make us really uncomfortable. You know, they they only talk about Francis Chan. I don't understand. You know, that kind of thing. It's like, could you just, you know? (laughs) Why is that? Well, here is Paul sort of building all this. If you look past verse 7 and verse 9, he says all of this must take place, quote, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. But what precedes that missional call? Verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, which certainly speaks to the importance of worship music of praying the scriptures together, of the liturgy of the corporate gathering, this one voice, but it's more than that. Notice he's not talking about singing in the conventional sense, although he's using these musical words like harmony, one voice. He's speaking to all of life, including this impending mission to the lost as itself an act of worship. Gospel-centered mission does not begin with leadership skills or leadership strategies. It begins with gospel exaltation. And gospel centered worship does not begin with the right song order. It begins with the call of God and the announcement of the finished work of Christ. In his now classic book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper, speaking on global missions, has a now you know, famous line that mission exists because worship does not. Probably a lot of you have read that. Mission exists. Because worship does not. The idea is you're looking out in the world and you see there are places that don't worship God. They don't exalt God. There's no love of God there. So we're going to go plant worship there. Because Habakkuk 2.14, right? The knowledge of the glory of God must cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Or they will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And so it's like you're looking. There's dry places out there. We're going to go get them wet with worship. And this is certainly true. But it's also true that mission exists because worship does because people have been so overcome, so in awe of the glory of God in Christ that they are moved. They can't keep it to themselves. This is why just the, the, the momentum you see in the opening chapter of, of Acts begins with that awe came upon every soul. Leslie Newbegin, in his book, Gospel in a Pluralist Society says, mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is more like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout, which is not lethal, but life-giving. It's a cry of worship. Mission is. Okay, lastly, last point, number six, gospel-centered worship glories in the gospel itself. Glories in the gospel itself. I don't know how you guys do it. Um, so, what, you know, the preacher has to do a new sermon every week, right? But you guys have this stable of songs, and every now and then you introduce a new song. But don't people get mad about that sometimes? Like They come in and like, can we do the one? And you're like, we just did that too. Right? So like, you're thinking, but you get to redo songs, and I wonder if sometimes, like, do you think, ah, this song getting a little old. And we kind of worn that one out. But for some people, it's like, you know, that's the classics or what have you. Or that one moved them so much and they want to have it again. And I think there's a parallel there just to the idea of the gospel itself. And sometimes there are people who say, how can you d- preach the gospel every week and expect people not to get bored with it? Like, don't, like save it for special occasion and then it's, it's really powerful, like if you bring it in at the last minute kind of thing. And I think we see the shift methodologically in the corporate worship of, um, you know, certain kinds of churches, where it used to be real big on the altar call, right? So, we'll do an altar call at the end of the service, even though it was like a law-based sermon. I I don't understand that. It's almost like, it's kind of, you know, like whiplash, right? It's like, here's, you know, five ways to be awesome. Oh, by the way, you're really not awesome. Here's Jesus, if you want him, kind of thing. And I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. But now, like, the altar call's gone. So, like, for a while, it was like, like, let's let's smuggle the gospel in. Like, well, everything will look exciting and fun and and we'll bring the gospel in. We were doing this, like, you know, when I was a kid, youth ministry days, we had the video games and, and pizza, and you get them in, and then you start preaching, and it's like John chapter six, everybody leaves at the end. We're all full, and they leave, you know, when the devotional starts, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so it's kind of like that, but after a while, it was like the gospel just went more and more and more into the background. And the fear, I actually had a, a, a lady come to me um, in sort of the last days when I was um, at my church in Vermont, and I was about to leave, and, she came to me, and I think she meant this in an encouraging way, but it wasn't encouraging at all. I mean, it was like, I kind of, you know, thanks, but no thanks to her. She said, Jared, you know, your thing is the gospel. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like so far, so good. My thing's the gospel. And she said, like, you, and you do that really well. I was like, oh, all right, yeah, that's good. And she said, but sometimes we just need to hear other things. And like, my heart just, like, broke. I didn't argue with her. I didn't, you know, I just, I thought it was... In that moment it was my place to just kind of listen and hear her heart and I thanked her for being honest with me and 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 you know trusting me with you know with that but I thought you know if if you think you've heard enough gospel it's it's proof that like you need more gospel like twice as much if you think you've heard enough how if if the gospel brings us the riches of Jesus Christ where would we ever get off thinking we're going to wear it out one Sunday a week, much less every day, for all eternity. You, you, we cannot wear this out. And the reality is, is this. Even if you were to repeat one facet of the gospel, and there's not just one facet of the gospel, it's a, it's, it's a glorious thing. Angels long to look into... The gospel, that's how eternally fascinating it is. You look at it from all these different angles. It's one gospel, but there's so many rich truths to it. But if you were just to focus on one, just one facet of it, you have people who during the week are going through so much pain and so much doubt and so much discouragement, and they've worked up so much sin that when they crawl themselves in through those doors on Sunday morning, just that one facet repeated again can, is eternally helpful to them. We're not going to wear it out. Let's not be afraid of that. Yeah, it's, it's one song. I mean, sing in different keys. Add one of those little choruses like you guys like to do to the old song. You know, whatever you want to do. But sing the same song over and over and over and over again. This is what gospel-centered worship does. It glories in the gospel. It realizes that only the gospel is power. And only the gospel empowers us to be the family of God, to love our neighbor, to be on mission, to commit to his word, to relish his word, to find his law delicious. How can you find the law delicious? Have you read Leviticus? Does that sound like sweet, like honey to your tongue, Leviticus? I think the only way you find the law delicious is if you feel in some way set free from it. The only way to be set free to the law is to be set free from the law. This is how Paul finishes up this section here, verse 7. Therefore, right, because of all that, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. There is a welcoming, a rejoicing in the good news for us and for others. This is what the gospel does. It provides the welcome of Christ. And for the church, for the worship gathering, for whatever it is, When we're together, the gospel has so informed us, it's so shaped us, that we treat each other as much as we're able, like Christ treated us. Now, how did Christ treat you? This is the question I ask when I see verse 7. How did Christ welcome me? Those of you who are worship leaders or you serve as some sort of leader in your church, you have people who serve under you, perhaps. I know what this is like. There are those people, right? There's some people who come in you're excited to see them, other people will come in. He's like, mm. bless their heart, right? Just, uh, that's one of those bless their heart people. <laughs> well, how did Christ welcome me? This is a question I have to keep asking myself, especially on Monday mornings. People show up. I'm the most tired. They're fired up from something. And my, I, my desk in my study, my church, it was a small church, rural Vermont. Had a big picture window that faced the parking lot. So when somebody was coming, I could see him. And I didn't have a secretary to like to say, he's not here or anything like that. Like they see me in the window and I see them and they're coming around. And some people are like on Monday morning, that person walks by and it's like, you remember the the music in in, in Wizard of Oz, whenever the, the witch would show up? <laughs> I was like, oh, here we go. It's like oh. I have to remind myself, okay, I'm showing up Monday morning, Jesus is in his study, and I'm walking in. What's Jesus saying? Oh, this guy. Again, it's always the same problem. Those of you who disciple, counsel, right? Don't you wish people would get new problems? Like, don't stop coming in. Just try a new sin or something. Like, it's like the same. We're in our rut. It's like the same thing over and over. That's, that's us with, with Jesus. And he's never like put out, never crossing his arms, never checking his watch, tis-tisking about us. We walk in every single time, and he says, ah, I'm so glad you're here. So glad you're here. Well, that's how Christ welcomed us. That's how we welcome each other. That's what the gospel does. If we're set on the law over time, that's going to shape us, and we'll start measuring everything, not just the metrics, who's there, how many people were there, how big the giving was, how excited people were, how well we pulled off the worship program. We'll start measuring each other. Maybe you're not pulling your weight. Maybe so-and-so needs to get their act together, and we've lost sight of the welcome of Christ. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you loved us while we were yet sinners. You did not wait for us to clean our act up because you knew that we wouldn't and couldn't. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to never lose sight of the grace you've given us, that we would treat others with this same grace. Keep us from self-righteousness, from self-exaltation, and help us in all things we do, whether we're preaching or teaching, discipling, counseling, mentoring, leading worship, writing songs. Help us to remember that there is nothing more powerful, much less more fascinating and creative and beautiful than the good news of your Son and His glory. And it's in His great name that we pray, the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you, guys.